I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system, which regulates many of our most critical bodily functions, such as learning and memory, emotional processing, sleep, temperature and pain control, and inflammatory and immune responses. The CBD brand that I take and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences, which is now proud to introduce a new innovation to their reserve collection, a sleep gummy. The reserve collection is a specially curated blend of full-spectrum cannabinoids, including THC. Rich and bold, the Reserve Collection products are for when intense support is needed. Reserve Sleep Gummies build on their unique Reserve Collection formula with effective sleep-focused ingredients to better prepare you for bed each night. Wake up feeling refreshed, energized, and ready to take on the day with Reserve Sleep Gummies. All of Plus CBD's products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code HOFFMAN30 for 30 percent off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for Plus CBD's new reserve collection, Sleep Gummies. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. It's our weekly broadcast where we invite questions. Questions come to questions at drhoffman.net. With me today is Layla Mutin, hence we call it Q&A with Layla. Layla is our resident nutritionist. How are you doing, Layla? Okay, Dr. Hoffman. How are you? Good, good. It, well, summer is officially over. <gasps> But, How did it get to be September? Yeah, you know, sometimes I have a little bit of, you know, I have sort of have a, a circadian rhythm that's based, you know, on many, many years of education, mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, the, the anxiety levels uh, go up a little bit uh, as the summer ends, mm. and I kind of have a built-in, like a biorhythm the, that makes me feel like I have to go back to school. And then I start having dreams like uh, I'm registered for, uh, you know, 24 credits, uh-huh. And uh, I can't find where my classes are. And I hate uh, that dream. It, you, right? <laughs> I just, it, you know, it's like a Kafkaesque dream where I'm like in some yeah. labyrinth and I'm looking for my classes. And you can't and find I it. I can't find it. Or my you class. have three weeks to complete a six month course. That That's the truly scary one. Or I'm right. not going to get my degree. Or what, what is that? What happened to that midterm? I think I missed it. Yeah. You know? Oh my gosh, I couldn't find that. Right. So school anxiety is increasing, but I felt good today because uh-huh. uh, I got up and uh, summer's over, but it's harvest time. Mm. And I went to the open air market that mm-hmm. is held once weekly near me in New York. In New York, uh, there are many locations for open air markets. Ours is once weekly at uh, Dog Harmershold Plaza near the UN. Yeah. And uh, the harvest is so bountiful there that, uh, you know, there's all these wonderful colors and all these wonderful vegetables. I mean, there's so many, I mean, uh-huh. you, you could, you could, you could cook from morning till night and not utilize, not utilize one tenth of the, the bounty uh-huh. that's there. Your vegetables like I'd like like little eggplant this you know that are the size baby eggplants baby eggplants oh, you know they're, nice. they're you know like they're and, so tasty yeah like and you know do I have time to make the all these things so uh, the a lot of fresh fruit yeah and this uh, highlights a little bit of apparel for our patients and our listeners this time of year because. There's a lots of really good stuff, like a lot of corn on the cob. Yeah. There's a lot of fruits, a lot of pe- peaches, mm-hmm. which normally taste like pulp, you know, like 
flavorless yeah. pulp. Yeah. They, they, on, on the outside, they look like peaches, but I call them ersatz peaches. They're available in the supermarket you know, uh -huh. all year round. They don't taste like anything. Now, this month, for like a very evanescent thing, it's like a, it was a short period of time, they taste good. Yeah. Right? They're like real peaches, right fresh off the trees, apricots. Lovely. And prunes, mm -hmm. which are really good. No, the, the, the small Italian plums. Plums, plums. Yes. Prunes oh. are the dried. Plums are, I yeah. love those plums. Yeah. So I bought mm -hmm. some plums. I had some plums. Uh, but you got to be mm -hmm. careful because excess fruit, fruit. sugar yeah. increases uric acid. Yeah. Sure, uric else? acid, triglycerides, insulin, yeah. triglycerides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So you got, you know, beware. Yeah. But uh, nonetheless, it is kind of a nice consolation that summer's over because we're moving into harvest time. Even though it's this heat wave that's going on. Oh, yeah. We, we dodged a bullet here in the Northeast. Now, many of you in other parts of the country are going to say, what are you talking about? New York has had a very mild summer. True. Uh, below average temperatures. But we're catching it in the teeth now. We are. With, it's in uh, the 90s. Yeah. You know, it's going to be hot and we'll probably... Not that we should complain compared yeah. to other parts of the country. Right. Which right? are becoming virtually uninhabitable. Yeah. Uh, I have here, before we get to questions, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of interesting uh, observations. Um, there is a burgeoning awareness mm -hmm. that Parkinson's disease may be a disease of the gut. Ah. Article here from last week. Mm -hmm. These four GI conditions may predict Parkinson's disease. Uh, dysphagia, difficulty swallowing, gastroparesis, difficulty with, you know, uh, sort of a slowdown of emptying of your stomach, mm -hmm. constipation, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, specifically predicted Parkinson's disease, more constipation predominant IBS. Um, so there are also... Uh, studies that suggest that if you analyze the microbiota of patients with Parkinson's, they are distinct differences and that artificial intelligence can predict many years ahead uh -huh. who will get Parkinson's disease based on what's going on in their gut. Fast forward to another study from this week. But there's a caveat to that. Go ahead. Uh, the gut can change. Yeah. That is if that microbiome stays stagnant just as it is. Right. Maybe there is Parkinson's right. in their future, right. but it can change in, in as little as a couple of days. It's not inevitable. And yeah. hence a study that just came in. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a Danish study. Giving patients with Parkinson's disease and constipation a probiotic for three months improved not only their gut microbiome, but also non-motor symptoms such as sleep, fatigue, and constipation. So you change their gut. And, you know, I don't know if they used a very, very specific, well, let's see. The, mm. the probiotic that they used, you know, it's kind of standard mix of lactobacillus, lacticacibacillus rhamnosus, enterococcus uh -huh. fecium, lactobacillus acidophilus, and lactoplantobacillus plantarum. For brand name, it's called Simprove. And it may be that somebody's trying to market this as something for Parkinson's patients. S-Y-M-P-R-O-V-E. We can investigate it and see if there's, you know, if they've got a lock on this combo or if there are other comparable brands. But that seemed to be the cocktail that helped those patients. So, uh, yeah, as you say, uh, it is, there, there, look, there may be some inevitability to your microbiome. But it's sometimes there's resistance to change in the microbiome. That's it's true, like, too. So there's sort of a programmed uh, plan which 
makes it more hospitable to certain organisms and not to others. That is maybe genetic or maybe imprinted from imprinted maternal from health. Maternal health, you right. know, something like that. You know, from uh, because they say that even taking probiotics, it doesn't necessarily reseed. It doesn't yeah. necessarily take, yeah. it, or it does for the mm-hmm. period of time mm-hmm. that you're taking it. But that can also still kind of go when you stop taking it. Uh, but a lot diet of changes it. Yes, uh, where you are changes it. You know, so if you go from. U.S. to Spain or something, it's going yes. to change. Uh, it has been shown that hospital personnel mm-hmm. uh, acquire the flora of the hospital. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And not you acquire the, the probiotics of the people you're keeping company with. Yeah. To, to yeah. a degree, you know, right? And you don't even it's have to have... It's our holobiome. And you don't even have to have, uh, you know, tongue kissing to, to obtain... No, that. no, yeah. you just have to be in the same room. Yeah. It's, it's that kind of a thing. It's fascinating because we're all a holobiome. Yeah. Like Pigpen in the Schultz comics, The Peanuts. Right. He's in this this chronic uh, uh, dustbin of, of around him. We're like a holobiome. Right. That way. It's kind of like in the forest where they say that like, the largest living creatures are the fungal species which interconnect from, you know, in the forest for, 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 for miles sometimes. Yeah. You know, that there's sort of a network of them. Anyway. And the trees talk to one another. And the trees talk. It's not just in Harry Potter movies. <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking of, uh, you know, Lots popular, popular themes, mm-hmm. uh, I talked about the history of sugar today. Mm. Uh, in the in or actually next week's newsletter, it's going to come out next week. And uh, did you know that sugar was prized as a medicine? Hmm. It was prized as a medicine because it was so rare that you know you would give a little sugar to someone who was sick. Uh, which reminds me of Mary Poppins. Uh-huh. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine. Is that down. where that originated? That that. That little ditty I'm there. not sure if that <laughs> is about the medieval use of sugar or if it's just simply a metaphor for, uh-huh. you know, if you do something pleasant while you do something aversive, it'll make it easier. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. You know, because basically she was singing it to children who were reluctant to do whatever their homework or something. I don't know what they're mm-hmm. doing. You know, it's, I think I saw that movie in 1962. I'm going to have to see that movie again. Right. Yeah, I've seen a long time. Oh my <laughs> anyway, gosh. so yeah, the history of sugar is very interesting because uh, it was something that was first cultivated by the Indians uh, in the first few centuries after uh, AD. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, it was something from the Orient. It was a precious thing from the Orient. But then uh, they began to raise it in the West. And the first place that they raised it uh, very systematically was on the island of Madeira, which was discovered prior to the discovery by Columbus. So it was discovered like in the 1400s. It's an island off Morocco. Wow. It was uh, Portuguese possession. But as they began to, to have better ships, they went further and further. And they found the island of Madeira, which was uninhabited. Mm-hmm. But it was a great climate for growing sugarcane. So initially they imported slaves mm-hmm. or indentured servants from uh, Iberia, you know, Portuguese wow. and Spanish. Uh, but then they got Berber slaves from North Africa. And so they farmed the, uh, the, uh, uh, the sugarcane fields. Uh, and then they, wow. quote, discovered America, which mm-hmm. didn't really discover, but they kind of uh, 
it was introduced to Europeans via Columbus, yeah. uh, who then uh, created the opportunity for a sugar industry, mm-hmm. which led to terrible depredation because initially uh, in Barbados, for example, they, they, they started with Irish workers like I, Irish wow. indentured servants, wow. which were, you had to like work for seven years to work off your debt. Uh, and so, and they found that they were very unsuitable because they just died off in droves. You know, these red-haired, pale-skinned Irish people in Barbados. in Barbados didn't do well. So then they said, I think we need somebody from a more tropical area. So they started getting uh, Africans to mm-hmm. work the fields mm-hmm. and under the most harsh imaginable conditions. And then they developed rum, which is an even more I that really sugar supercharged yeah. the sugar industry. Because yeah. did you know, as a factoid that I hmm. found for the article, is that the average American colonial prior to uh, the Revolutionary War uh, drank, and I have the exact statistic here. Uh, let's see, uh, drank. <clears throat> I'm looking for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking specifically of rum, which is made of sugar cane. I'm trying to think of any other spirits that may be made. I know that tequila is from the agave plant, but rum... Any yeah. carbohydrate will yield alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three. I thought, that, yeah, I was going to say 3.7 gallons. It's estimated that consumption reached 3.7 gallons per year per person. Uh, by American colonists by the time of the American Revolution. Wow. So they drank a lot of rum. That's a lot of That's rum. That's a lot of rum. <laughs> 2.7 <laughs> gallons a year. Wow. And the average uh, seaman mm-hmm. got a, ra- a rum ration. You know, it's like, uh-huh. like, you know, it's pretty tough being on a ship, but you could look forward to that rum ration. You oh, know. my goodness. You got to have your rum ration. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd mutiny and throw the captain overboard. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to that article, right. the history of sugar. Yeah, but the the theme of the article is that yeah. sugar, while you know, caused terrible devastation in terms of the slave industry, it's now causing terrible devastation in terms of the toll of illness that it's causing yes. to the world, not just America, but throughout the world. I often tell patients we thought the most addictive substances on the planet were like heroin and cocaine. It's sugar. Yeah. It's so hard yeah. to give up. It's, yeah. it's the... It's the proto addiction, mm-hmm. you know. Prior to virtually anything else, yeah. it's what people got addicted to. Prior to caffeine, prior to tobacco, prior to you know drugs, it's what humans are wired to seek out. Yeah, and it's in such limited quantities in the natural environment, but yeah. we've turned the tables on that. Yeah, but and you know what else? Mother Nature got it right because fructose, as found in fruit, Mm -hmm. is the sweetest substance on the planet. Yeah. And she set us up so we would eat the fruit when it was available, so we would fatten up for the upcoming famine. Exactly. It's a survival mechanism. And you see that with, uh, you know, many animals Mm -hmm. is uh, they come out really lean in the spring Mm. uh, and then they progressively fatten up. Yeah. for the rigors of like bears are on bears, a berry yeah. tear. They eat berries. They just consume enormous amounts of berries. Mm-hmm. They get fat and then they hibernate and then they burn down some of that stored yes. fat. Uh, yeah. And of course, they have a lot of what's called brown fat, which the cold tends to accelerate the metabolism of their fat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
fascinating stuff. It's also thought that uric acid is something that is associated, which is which is increased by fructose. Uric acid makes you insulin resistant. Yeah, makes you hold on to fat, mm -hmm. which is actually advantageous if you're trying to hold on to fat for right. famine. Yeah, it's just not advantageous to hold on to fat in modern life. Exactly, but and it's also not advantageous for gout. Exactly. Uh, ouch. Right. Right. High right. uric acid. Yes, indeed. Hmm. So anyway, so, so let's get to questions. Questions come directly to questions at drhoffman.net. Mm -hmm. um, we've got an email from Chris. Hi, Dr. Hoffman. Can you comment if niacin has any negative impact on blood sugar for diabetes? I've managed to get up to 1,000 milligrams of immediate release niacin along with the flush per day. But I found many articles on the internet saying that niacin can increase blood sugar levels with diabetes. Right. So this is a very interesting question because, and I'll give you a little context, is when I was getting started in medicine, mm -hmm. uh, I think I was in medical school, maybe pre-med, uh, it was in the 70s, there was a book called The Eight-Week Cholesterol Cure by a guy named Kowalski. And Kowalski wrote this book essentially saying, you know, this is when people were starting to become aware of cholesterol. Yeah. You know, those, and we have been so thoroughly indoctrinated that everybody is worried about cholesterol now. It's like yeah. more people know their cholesterol than know their IQ. <laughs> you know? True. And so uh, in that book, he proposed that people take niacin at mm -hmm. high doses because niacin was demonstrated to lower cholesterol. And we know the cholesterol may, have, may or may not, you know, it's controversial, have something to do with cardiovascular disease. I'm not saying it doesn't, in, in, but yeah. in some cases it does, in some cases it doesn't. It's more yeah. nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. But so the thought is that this is great. It's something you can buy over the counter and it lowers cholesterol dramatically. It also raises HDL, mm -hmm. it lowers triglycerides. Yeah. And we've come to realize that it also can lower LPA. Mm. One of the few things that lowers LPA by as much as thirty percent. Wow, niacin can do that. Right. Wow. So, so okay. So, so fast forward. Uh, they started doing. They used to sell something called niacin. It was a pharmaceutical drug. Niacin. I remember. Yeah. It was time release niacin, and it was a prescription. That's a long time ago. And it was considered very appropriate. Mm -hmm. So, but the problem with niacin, whether it's time release or immediate is that it can cause a lot of unpleasant flushing yeah. at the high doses that are necessary to lower cholesterol. So you need not just 50 or 100, you need 1,000 or yeah. 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 to lower your mm -hmm. cholesterol significantly. And at those doses, you're invariably going to have flushing. You're going to all turn all red, yeah. you're going to feel hot. Moreover, it also causes some liver damage. Yeah, so, we have to watch with nice. So Kowalski got caught up in a class action lawsuit. A bunch of people who followed his instructions to a T, bought the book, did it, and ended up with liver failure. And so that kind of was kind of yeah. a caution on the use of niacin. So it has also been suggested that niacin can raise blood sugar. Mm -hmm. But I looked at that, yeah. and niacin, according to some studies, it doesn't really do that very much, if at all. It, it was, was a very limited amount, or yeah. it wasn't statistically. So I happen to know that yeah. Chris is a type 1 diabetic. He mm -hmm. takes insulin. Mm -hmm. If you're already taking insulin, 
I don't think the niacin is going to appreciably increase your requirements for insulin. Yeah. So why take it is, you know, perhaps he's concerned about some cardiovascular protection that might offer. Okay, so they did a study called the AIM High study where they came up with a niacin that was really flush-free niacin. Flush-free mm -hmm. niacin that's sold by, uh, you know, inositol, hexanicotinate. Uh, that is really not efficacious for lowering cholesterol. Uh-huh. So there's some, it used to, that was one of my pet peeves is in the 90s it was popular in the early 2000s. Flush-free niacin didn't work, the stuff yeah. that was sold over the counter. But a pharmaceutical company paired niacin with a prostaglandin inhibiting drug called latinoprocet or something like that, latinoprost or something like that. And what happened was uh, there were more problems than benefits. Oh no. Uh, they, so it, it, they had to stop the study early because it was causing liver problems and was causing other problems and it wasn't effective. And we actually find this sometimes with drugs that lower cholesterol or raise HDL. Some of these, there was a new raft of very expensive drugs that raised HDL. You think that's a good idea? It didn't always, it didn't pan out. Huh. So, Interesting. so niacin then got abandoned around 2015 or 2016. It was mm -hmm. like, forget about niacin. Well, uh, I have an article here that is takes a little more nuanced approach. And it's from 2017. Mm -hmm. Did a little research on this. Thank you, Chris, for prompting the research. Um, the uh, article uh, is entitled, let's see if we can find this. Um, and by the way, while you're looking for that, yeah. Do you remember the antidote for that flush was to take 500 milligrams of quercetin about 30 minutes yep. before taking the niacin? Right, or, or, an, aspirin. or an aspirin. Or an aspirin, yeah. I'd rather take the quercetin than exactly. the aspirin, especially on an empty stomach. Right. right. I'm not sure that it blocked the liver damage, though. True. We'd still have to watch the liver. So a little caution uh, to Chris if you're taking all of this niacin. So... Yeah, this is interesting stuff. Okay, so, so, so the article is entitled, it's a kind of a cool title, mm -hmm. Niacin and Heart Disease Prevention, Engraving Its Tombstone as a Mistake. Mm. So this is after everybody said, forget niacin, doesn't work. Well, part of the problem is that we've come up with all these other expensive prescription drugs. Uh, statins, and now PCSK9 inhibitors, and now bempedoic acid, and like all, the, there's all these, you know, LebQO, these are drugs that, lower cholesterol and are prescription drugs and have the benefit of underwriting from the pharmaceutical industry to do these multi, multi, multi hundred of million dollars studies yeah. to show that they actually do reduce cardiovascular disease risk. Yeah. You know, uh, biased as they might be. I mean, you got to admit that some of these studies actually show that they hit the endpoints for people who are at risk. You know, not everybody needs this. So, but what this guy says is that he says earlier niacin trials showed significant benefit in cardiovascular outcomes. Why can't we can't forget about those trials? Mm -hmm. uh, and nowadays, it is it, it would be considered unethical to say to someone who is at risk of cardiovascular disease, you can't take a statin. Huh. It is like it's got you got to be on a statin. Yeah, it would be like appears, you know, yeah. a, like a uh, uh, kind of like the. Um, Tuskegee Heart Study, you know, where they re they refused to give penicillin to these oh, men with syphilis yeah. when they knew that penicillin was the treatment. 
Well, they know that statins have something to do with cardiovascular risk. So mm -hmm. any study now that would look at niacin would have to look at niacin on top of statin therapy. And so it might uh, uh, vitiate mm -hmm. the uh, effect of the niacin. But maybe niacin as a standalone has some benefits. Okay. Um, they, the, the, the other issue is the, the, the niacin formulation, the dosing, the timing. Mm -hmm. And they think that the type of dyslipidemia, the type of uh, lipid problem that's most amenable mm -hmm. to uh, niacin is where a high triglycerides are present because ah. niacin does reduce triglycerides. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, can we reconsider niacin under certain circumstances? Well, the problem is at the high doses necessary, you got to watch the liver. You also have to watch the liver on statin drugs to some That's extent right. too. That's yeah. right. But um, yeah. you know, is it is it ideal? Uh, can it give some added benefit when you're ta already taking these other drugs? I don't think it's you know. I think we should kind of reexamine niacin as yeah. a uh, you know as a potential therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's that bad or useless. Um, and you think the whole Kowalski thing is now reverber reverberated enough? Well, I it's mean, like the Tylenol with the cyanide poisoning. Yeah, Can we get yeah, over it yeah. and get back to acetaminophen again? Or right, right. No, I, I think that with appropriate cautions, niacin could be used. Now, is Chris gaining any benefit? You know, Chris is diabetic, so he has a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. He's taking a dose of a thousand of niacin. Yeah, is that dose? going to do him any good. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, maybe not. It's not been that well studied. Yeah. You know, could it lower his cholesterol a little bit? Yeah. Could it raise his HDL a little bit? Could it lower his LPA a little bit? And maybe confers a little bit of benefit in someone who is already at risk. Mm -hmm. Should the average person who's fine take high-dose niacin? No, no, because it's unpleasant, because yes. of flushing. And you need to watch your liver enzymes. Yeah, yeah. That you need to be supervised. But taking that much um, is the uh, raising of blood sugar a big knock on it? Some studies point that out, but I, I as you said, I don't yeah. think that that's the biggest disadvantage of niacin. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, I, I, you say this yeah. just anecdotally. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a patient who has who takes an enormous amount of supplements mm -hmm. as many years ago and uh, what he did he does is he puts all the supplements in 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 containers um, you know I guess on his you know kitchen table or on his bedroom table I don't know what it was but it was in, it was in the early in the morning and he mm -hmm. got up early and he was fumbling in the dark and he decided to take a big handful of his supplements that he'd prepared the night before but mistakenly he took a big handful of niacin, <gasps> and they're 500 milligram niacins, and he says he took like 16 of them, you know, oh, or no. something. Oh no, 8,000 milligrams so of niacin. he began to flush like crazy. Uh, he went to the hospital. He was admitted because they thought, what in the heck is going on with this guy? Uh, the net result was nothing really happened. His liver didn't become damaged on such I, a huge his, dose? I think he might have had a little bit of a bump in his liver mm. function tests for... Mm -hmm. Transiently, but he did not, you know, go on to have permanent liver damage or need a liver, you know, right? But uh, not like well, not like ODing on Tylenol I mean, would do. I don't even remember. He might have taken twenty or twenty-five. Wow! Of those, you know? So 
so there's there's a margin for error. Yeah. But day in and day out, high dosing for some people could be really problematic. All right. So note to all of you, don't stumble around in the dark and put a bunch of pills in your mouth when you're, <laughs> when you're not sure. Right. You might end Especially up if you're having the nightmare of not being able to find your classroom and you have to take 24 credits in three, three and a half weeks right. or you won't be certified. <laughs> it's that time of year, folks. Oh my gosh, I hate that nightmare. Yeah. <gasps> All right, so uh, yeah. we've got more questions. Give us a preview of what we're going to talk about in part two. Well, let's see. A friend of mine has been diagnosed with idiopathic thrombocytopenia and now is diagnosed with polycythemia vera. Okay. Oh, we'll talk about that subject when we return. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast, our weekly Q&A with Layla.